what's, what about the patients? And I think researchers, we can actually say, well, you know, we're doing research and it's all very interesting. But um, the vice chair of Kidney Research UK is a patient. And, and he's actually stood up and said, you know, at the annual meeting, well, you've published, you know, 122 papers. You've got certainly you know, a number of PhDs. But actually, I'm taking the same pills. ISN would like to acknowledge Trevere for their support of this special WCN 21 series of the ISN Global Kidney Care podcast. So hello, everybody, and welcome to the Global Kidney Care podcast. Uh, my name is Roberto Picoafilho. I'm a nephrologist and uh, deputy chair of the education working group at ISN. And I co-host this uh, podcast with uh, Smita Sinha. Um, this is going to be a special edition of the podcast of a series of uh, podcasts dedicated to the WCN, the World Congress on Nephrology, which is currently in the uh, Raising the Curtains sessions. And um, it will start uh, and continue for the rest of the week and early next week. And um, today we have a special episode dedicated to one of the pillars of the International Society of Nephrology activities, which is uh, building capacity. So um, we have... Um, a discussion with um, some people that had a very nice experience in different settings of the world with building capacity for research specifically. And I'll let um, Smita to introduce our guest today. Yeah, thanks, Roberto. And it's good to be podcasting again with you after our little segue with others. Um, so I'm delighted to have um, Professor Jeremy Hughes with us today. So he's chair of Kidney Research UK and um, is also a nephrologist in Edinburgh. And uh, Dr. Joe Adu, who's from the University of Ghana Medical School um, and who's been doing some fantastic genomic research into CKD in Africa. And we are, we are also joined by Laura Sala a nephrologist from Uruguay and a member of the current executive committee of the International Society of Nephrology. Welcome to our podcast. Um, so um, shall I kick off Roberto and grill Professor Hughes? Absolutely. Okay, uh, so Professor Hughes, you're um, a chair of Kidney Research UK um, and Roberta has set the scene for capacity building. Would you be able to give us a, an overview around Kidney Research UK strategy around capacity building in, in the country? Yeah, um, thanks uh, Smita. So I, I suppose you can actually separate capacity building into a couple of different areas. So one of the things is the fact that people do research now and one of the core functions of the charity is to provide research funding to allow people to kind of come from that clinical arena and to pick something up a real interest to them and hopefully a lifelong passion to them and then enter the research field. So we have a whole variety of fellowships and they're for medical clinicians, but they're also for other health professionals, uh, medical students, and also scientists. So that is really important because what we're aiming to do there is actually put in place a cadre of really well-qualified, well-trained researchers, and then they go and do other stuff. They'll get money from other funders. They will do research, and hopefully over a lifetime, like folk like Joe, um, they actually they do great work. So that's really important. So developing the people to do the research. I think secondly, it's about actually um, we all know that we can't do it ourselves. So we're a, we're a relatively small charity. We're the biggest charity in the UK that funds research. But obviously, we've been hit by COVID, and that's affected our income. So a key part of what we do is build partnerships. 
And without partnerships, you really can't achieve anything like what you would like to achieve. So we have partners with funding organizations, so the Medical Research Council, the NIHR, uh, the British Heart Foundation, so other charities. Um, but also actually we, we partner with industry. And I think that's really important because again, you know, industry are really important delivering new treatments and actually taking them to the clinic. So people, um, partnerships, and I think lastly, a key area is infrastructure. So um, one of the things that we've been developing over the years actually is infrastructure. And in 2007, there was a really good piece of work, which is where the Reading Association, the British Reading Society and the charity came together and then built this UK Kidney Research Consortium. And that I think gives researchers a home. So we've got 12 clinical study groups covering AKI, CKD, imaging, et cetera, three national networks. And then we have conversations that are um, get, get going in those groups and then we can link them to industry or to funders and then they generate the research. And then working with the NIHR, we try and deliver those trials. So we have a, a system for developing and initiating research and then again, funding it and then delivering it. Um, and so the last bit of infrastructure are biobanks. And again, we all know now how really important biobanks are. So again, the charity has been instrumental in linking to uh, industry and uh, multiple companies to build the Nurture Biobank. And again, that's a biobank of CKD and nephrotic syndrome um, with 3,000 samples. And again, that is something which takes time to deliver and evolve, but actually it'll pay dividends in research for many, many years to come. So they're the things that I think are really pivotal to us. It's about developing researchers as people, having partnerships with multiple stakeholders, and then thinking about the infrastructure you need to really uh, turbocharge and push research forward. They're the things I think that we feel are critical and have been doing for the last uh, many, well, 60 years. Now we're in our 60th year of the charity. It's about the age of ISN, Jeremy. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, yeah. talking about ISN, have, have you guys had uh, an experience of partnering with the International Society of Nephrology in different projects that might be worth mentioning? So I suppose the difficulty there is in the name. It's Kidney Research UK. So we mm -hmm. raise money within the UK and therefore we fund research in the UK. I think from my perspective as chair, I think it is an area that um, is of interest. And I would like to see whether we can work within our articles being a UK-based charity with other um, international partners. I mean, by definition, industry is their global companies. Um, but there is some really interesting stuff. And we certainly have conversations. So we have conversations with the Dutch Kidney Foundation because they've got a really interesting model actually of trying to accelerate stem cell research where the government and academia come together to turbocharge that field. So it is an area, again, I think at the moment we need to get ourselves out of the COVID, but it's on my agenda to see what can we do internationally that would fit with our articles um, to actually, again, to deliver more with less, which is always what we have to do, isn't it? Um, yeah. Jeremy, you know, um, you were saying that you've been there for 60 years and the, this podcast is very much around capacity building. You've described three pillars of capacity building within Kidney Research UK. Is there an opportunity to partner with the ISN on developing capacity building in the way you've described in maybe some countries that don't have that, um, so lower middle income countries? Um, do you think there is an opportunity to take that model into those countries? Yeah. Well, I think the charity model is a great model because by definition, you know, it allows you to raise money in a tax efficient way and then by definition, the articles of a charity is about delivering research for the benefit of patients. 
and it is sort of a it's a vehicle that allows you to have conversations and if you've got the really good governance because that's what that's key is you know good robust financial governance then you can actually partner and money can come from various areas either you know individuals or companies and come through the charity to do the work so it, it is interesting i think the, the key question that roberto raised was can you do that internationally and i think what we have probably are silos where there's probably you know charities doing great work in different areas that may not be connected up um and i think that's because we can all learn from each other um and i think now we're also we're so used to now being virtual aren't we i mean here we are all talking together because of COVID, we now have virtual meetings all the time. So actually, so having international conversations actually is much easier than we would have thought of previously. So I think there could be um, some new activity in this field. And I'd be very happy to have conversations with uh, folks that are interested in the charity model and what that can achieve. Because certainly, it's, I think it's been great for the UK. Um, we definitely, we deliver a whole variety of things that never, ever enter our accounts. So in our, our profit and loss balance sheet, um, will never show you nurture or the farmer interactions or the, the output of the consortia, et cetera. So um, it really is a, a catalyst to make things happen with actually very little resource. It's very, it's very efficient as a means of delivering capacity and increasing capacity. And the, you know, the, the other pillar that we talk at ISN all the time as, as another main area for activities connecting the community. And connected the community has been really in the DNA of ISN over the you know the last sixty years, and I, I guess it's um, this conversation raises perhaps opportunities of how to connect people across the globe. And talking about connections, I wanted to just bring uh, Joe into the discussion here because uh, you've been very much in touch with um, with ISN over the years in different in different uh, roles and capacities, and also. Uh, trying to use the, uh, the this international society to to you know to trigger projects and to uh, build capacity in in Africa, for instance, in the projects that you were you were involved with. Yes, I have, and um, I mean, it started off with um, ISN Comgan, which was a, a grouping to try and interact between ISN centrally and mostly lower, now call them lower, lower middle income countries. And actually arising from that, and Rashad Basum, I think did a great job in introducing the ISN fellowships and Africa has greatly benefited from that. Um, certainly Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya. So East and West Africa benefited from that enormously. The other, I think really important thing with the ISN sister centers, arrangements that again, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya that I know of, and other African countries. So um, we'd had one when I was in the UK between Birmingham and Ghana, and then that was subsequently extended. But it meant that when I returned to Ghana in 20, um, 2009, there were a lot of trained nephrologists across Western East Africa, and also renal units that had actually developed because of that ISN background. And so everything was ripe to try and set up a research program. But that was based on over a decade of ISN activities in Africa. 
So did, um, Joe, did the, um, gen- you know, the genomic research that you, you're doing in Africa, did that come from the ISN or was that um, um, a, an added benefit? It was an added benefit because ISN at least had developed the, the man, the woman power, the person power um, across Africa that allowed this to happen. Um, so the genomic studies are a brainchild actually of the NIH, um, the Wellcome Trust, um, and also the African Society of Human Genetics, who back in 2010 recognized that although Africa is known to be the cradle of mankind and humans already, you know, migrated from Africa sometime, maybe 80 to 100,000 years ago, and Africa has a greater diversity in terms of genes almost all the genomic studies and certainly all the GOSs had been done in non-African populations and only 5% um, represented African populations. And so they set up the human heredity and health in Africa research program. And we spun off from that. So there's an H3 Africa program, over a hundred projects, several hundred million dollars in funding and the kidney program originated from H3Africa. Can you wow. can you highlight you know some of the uh, important outputs of the project in terms of nephrology? Yeah. Um, so um, the, the proportion of the individuals in sub-Saharan Africa who have chronic kidney disease is fourteen percent, and when they reach end stage, only one to two um, percent are likely to get end-stage renal failure treatment form of dialysis, and even that for relatively short periods of time. I think that one of the major things that we've been able to achieve is by recruiting a large number of subjects and then looking at the risk factors, the genomic and environmental risk factors for chronic kidney disease. We have identified, had already been identified in African-Americans, who originated from Africa, that variant in the apolipoprotein L1 gene are strongly associated with chronic kidney disease. Now we've recruited now over 12,000 patients into our study. So we've been able to demonstrate this association in a much larger population that had been done in African Americans. I think the second, I think really important thing has been training, that we've trained a whole range of researchers from research nurses um, through doctors, um, research nurses in the practical aspects of um, recruiting, carefully recruiting patients and then and subjects. And the doctors have had epidemiology training and then also genetic training or training in genetics. So we've had maybe half a dozen who have done master's programs and finished in genomics. We've had several who've done PhDs in genomics and we've set up genomic laboratories, one in Nigeria and one in Ghana using appropriate technology. And the third really important thing has been our emphasis on community engagement, going out to the communities, telling them what genetic research is, what it can and can't do, and getting their views 
on, for example, broad sharing of DNA and broad sharing of data so that for almost all our studies, we've got both. And we've been able to establish, uh, not me personally, but our group, um, biorepositories in Nigeria, Uganda, and South Africa, and also a, a bioinformatics core in South Africa. So all our genomic data and all our other clinical data is stored. So that's a huge and important repository um, for future genetic studies. And I think finally has been our emphasis on ethics to making sure that all the research that we do fulfills you know, the highest ethical principles. All our investigators from the research nurses, data clerks, up to the PIs have undergone quite rigorous research ethics training and certification. And we've also engaged research ethics committees across Africa to talk about the ethics of genomic research. And, and I think that there are a lot of people doing genomic research and without engagement and making sure they can take your community with you and your ethics committee so that you all understand what's going on, you end up with you know, people being unhappy that they didn't consent for studies. And we've had a few of that. So it's been quite a broad capacity building exercise across all the areas that I've mentioned. Yeah, that's quite the task, isn't it? And hopefully that sets um, a platform for the future. Um, so there's a lot of data there, um, lots of lots of people uh, with a um, with potential to do loads. Where do you see this going in five years? You know, what's in it for the patients? Um, um, where's the translational element? Um, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, yeah I think that's really, really important. And it's now that we're beginning to turn our uh, thoughts to where it goes. We, we've identified these variants in apolipoprotein L1 gene and the proteins are found in the kidneys and they cause kidney damage. And people are beginning to identify the mechanisms of damage in podocytes and blood vessels. And actually there are companies now that have um, produced RNA eyes that will silence the gene. Um, there are also groups that are beginning to look at compounds that can interfere with the activity of the APOL1 variants. I mean, I should just add, and everybody knows it, that these variants arose about 10,000 years ago to protect people from trypanosomiasis and therefore rose to a high proportion only in Africa where you find and trypanosomiasis in the population. And certainly in our studies, we're finding that something like 60 plus percent of Ghanaians and Nigerians carry one, uh, at least heterozygous or homozygous for this variant. And it lyses the lysosomes in trypanosomes and it's been shown to do the same in human kidney cells. So if you can find, or if Jeremy can help us find something that stabilizes lysosomes or protects them, and we've got some ideas that we're looking at, then hopefully we can reduce the damage. But you're right, we're moving into therapy now. So uh, Jeremy, uh, you'll be speaking at the World Congress on Nephrology uh, in the coming days. 
Can you can you provide us like a highlight? What 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 will be your presentation about? Um, yeah, so it's essentially it's about really you know what a charity can do within a UK landscape, and and I think uh, I do think of it being like an ecosystem, um, and you know to be a healthy renal ecosystem for researchers and also patients. Now you have to have a couple of things in place, and that means people. And I think Joe has mentioned you know the the training of people, and hopefully uh, the master students and the PhD students are going to do some great things in Africa and actually take genomics further forward. So that's critical. Yeah. The infrastructure, and again, I think you know what I've said and what Joe said about having repositories of either DNA and using data and being joined up. Um, I think that's really important as well. Um, so it's really about that actually, and then. What you can do when you engage with people, have a good conversation, establish infrastructure, then in general, people who are keen and passionate get on and do it. A big thing is about the linking though. And again, we've talked about this. So for example, um, I want to go back to a point that you, um, Smita, you said about you know, what's, what about the patients? And I think researchers, we can actually say, well, you know, we're doing research and it's all very interesting, but um, the vice chair of Kidney Research UK is a patient. And, and he's actually stood up and said, you know, the annual meeting, well, you've published you know, 122 papers, you've got certainly a number of PhDs, but actually I'm taking the same pills. You know, and I'm actually taking more of the pills because my kidneys are getting worse. So we've got these sort of informal watchwords really, which we try and adhere to. And, and one of them is ambition. So again, I think being ambitious, and again, Joe's really described a really ambitious program and you have to have ambition and vision to drive real capacity to um, leapfrog in research. Uh, you've got to have passion. And I think, I mean, Joe's got this in spades. I've known Joe for a long time. Uh, Joe, Joe is very passionate about what you do. And that is absolutely fundamental. And there are certain people who make a big difference through their drive and their passion to really implement change. And I think the last word, which is really important for the patients, is urgency. So again, you know, what we don't want to do is to collect information about, um, you know, S-SNPs or mutations and what happens. Actually, it's right, you know, let's link with industry and let's actually get drugs that we can then do clinical trials to see that they give us benefit. And coming back to the charity, we've taken us on board, the fact that, you know, we do need to do what we do, build capacity, do research, but how do we translate that into clinical uh, research and then to the patients? So we're doing things a little bit differently. And recently, we've, over the past two years, we've set up a development advisory board, which is specifically about capturing key areas of research and then linking with either venture capitalists or industry um, or, or spin-outs to generate the research to take that into the clinical arena. Because at the end of the day, and I'm sure Joe will agree, if there's not something that a patient can take to ameliorate their disease, what's the point? Mm. <laughs> so I think that's a really important part. And I think that came out well uh, with you, Joe, as, and uh, what you're doing in Africa. It's about eventually taking this and then bringing it back to the clinic. And I hope I'll touch upon that in my, in my talk at the, at the WCN. Mm. I'm just wondering, listening to you both, that, you know, you have these huge data sets, different populations, but similar problems, um, you know, Nurture, for example, collects data on CKD genomics. There's a lot of opportunity for cross-validation, um, looking at that work and how it might translate into different populations. And I bet there's a lot of similarities. I don't know what you guys think. <laughs> Well, I'll say, Joe, maybe you could pick up. So I think data is, is, is it's a little bit new, isn't it? I mean, it's really taken over the, the value yeah. of data yeah. because of computing yeah. and the yeah. ability to handle vast data sets. So at the moment, yeah. we are trying to establish 
um, a UK-wide mm. renal healthcare data network. Because yeah. you're right, people do work in silos. There are mm. data sets in Scotland or in the Midlands or in London or in mm. Wales. And we are trying to have that conversation now to try and set up a network that the charity will support mm. to actually to get people doing bigger studies or again, validating findings in other populations. So that's what I'd like to ask Joel, is, is, there, is there that opportunity now you've got infrastructure to really get a mm. data network that can then mm. analyze that data? Because there's so mm. much of value there, isn't there? Is that happening, mm. Joe? Are there plans for that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, again, I think that's a really important point, and I completely agree with Jeremy. So we've got huge data sets. I hadn't actually thought about the potential for linking our data with nurture, you know, and pulling out whatever is important. So we've been getting into developing polygenic risk scores, and again, that could cut across different ethnicities. So I think that there should be huge opportunities you know, as, you know, our colleagues develop the bioinformatics tools to actually link the data sets to ask the specific questions. So it's really a very important point, and I've made a note. <laughs> Excellent. You can put my name on the paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Laura, the National Health, Health, Renal Health Program is a, it's a fantastic story, I think, um, of how you know, with with some um, help from the International Society on Nephrology, a project can start and, and then have repercussions in so many, so many different uh, countries in Latin America. So tell us a little bit about the, you know, how this started and um, how it evolved to become such an important um, research uh, and uh, policy making a resource for Uruguay and for other countries in Latin America? Yes, uh, thank you, Roberto. Uh, it was uh, at the end of 2004 that we began with the idea of uh, getting better health for, for patients that were not only in dialysis, but in previous states where we noticed that the patient's um, quality of care was not good enough. So we went with, with two very famous nephrologists to speak with the National Fund of Resources, that is the institution that pays for uh, dialysis and transplantation for the whole country, and told them that we, if we got better results, perhaps they will spend less money on dialysis. And they, be, they trust in us and be, began with a, at least with a registry for what we were going to do and some help. But also at that time, uh, we saw that there was a proposal from at that time, the research and prevention ISN GO program. We postulate our program and we won an award that even at today, we still have some <laughs> money. It was a small amount of money, but the small amount of money and the prestigious that we got for being awarded for, for, for our program and the opportunity of hosting um, some prestigious nephrologists as yourself. <laughs> in, in, for instance, in, in 2007, 
at the satellite symposium in Punta del Este from the World Congress of Nephrology from Rio, we have a symposium on prevention of CKD and of progression of CKD. So ISN award uh, was a great opportunity for having resources, not only money, but uh, communication with other nephrologists, the opportunity of learn of other nephrologists and um, interact to get uh, known by, by the nephrology community, and especially from with a lot of work of us with, 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 with our registry to be known in Latin America. So uh, not only me, but other nephrologists of our committee now, there, from the very beginning, it was a committee of several members of the University of the Uruguayan Society of Nephrology and of the health institutions that um, lead this project. So we all have been in many countries several times with meetings with, also with meetings with, with um, governmental representatives. I remember very nice um, visits to, to Colombia in 2008 and 2009, to Paraguay, to many countries. So I think it's has been a, a great opportunity for us to improve our work, our research, because we have um, a cohort of patients that at, at this time is over 25,000 patients being followed up for many years. So with this, with this cohort, we, we, we can do our own studies and also participate. We ha had a great opportunity to, thanks to Harold Feldman that he has also been in Uruguay to, to participate in I Need CKD. That is a great ISN project that includes many cohorts and also gave us as a registry cohort uh, the opportunity to participate. So I think it has been a very important opportunity for us as a, as a country. Also, it has been a great opportunity for our patients because we, we are confident that we uh, improve the, the knowledge of other specialties, doctors and teams regarding CKD prevention. We gave, we, we, we have talks in almost every city in, in Montevideo, in Uruguay and in any great healthcare institution regarding uh, CKD diagnosis and uh, CKD prevention for, not for only for nephrologists, but for the whole, um, healthcare teams. So I think it has been over the years a great experience. I really enjoyed that. Thank you guys, especially because there were so many similarities um, across talks, um, certainly talking about the people, you know, the importance of um, training people so that they can continue doing the work long after we've all gone, uh, but also setting up structures with not just clinicians, but industry, charitable works and societies. Um, so 
it looks like we've got a blueprint for capacity building irrespective of where you are so um, I hope everybody else found it as useful as I did um, thank you so much for uh, joining us today yeah thanks so much guys thank you thank you very much like to acknowledge Trevere for their support of this special WCN 21 series of the ISN Global Kidney Care Podcast.